We are ending a series of messages that we've been working our way through all summer long called Devoted, and we have been devoting ourselves to the early life of David, and it, it's been a really cool journey for me, and I have loved this series. This past week, I was saying that we're finishing this up, and Terry Eagle, who will be coming up later making announcements, Terry said, are we still in that series? And what I heard was, I'm so excited about this series. I wish we could keep going, but unfortunately, we're ending today. And today we're going to end, you guys, we're going to land on just a big ticket principle. I have prayed for this morning that this would be inspiring, because today's really a reminder of just one of the main principles that drive our lives. If we have a connection with God because of what Jesus Christ has done, then this is central for us. And so today will be really a reminder to you of the whole giddy-up. If you do not have a connection with God, then I pray that you'll be able to listen on this morning with interest and that God will really provoke something in you. So we're going to be looking at the first part of 2 Samuel. We spent the entire summer working ourselves through the second half of 1 Samuel and the early life of David. And it just felt like, you know, if you've been following this summer like an HBO series, it just felt like it was one of those series where, you know how they are, the television shows where it looks like things are good and then now you realize they're worse than they ever were. And that's what it's like in the early life of David. And finally, today we get at least a hint of relief. But in this, we're going to see a really big overarching principle. That's awesome and epic for us. So I'm going to kick that off with prayer this morning, if I can, and let's go to the Lord. So Father, we are here under a variety of circumstances. We're in various places spiritually and emotionally, but we don't believe we're here by accident. You have convened this meeting, and really, God, I ask that we would hear and walk into and welcome your purposes. I pray today that you would remind us, Lord, of this just most basic principle for how we do our lives. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. If you've seen the TED Talk, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, you'll think that I'm joking or that this is really a, some kind of elaborate illustration that's going somewhere, but it's not. There is a five-minute TED Talk on how to tie your shoes. And the guy who does this TED Talk says at a certain point in it, you know, you would think that by the time you get to be 50 years of age, that's a skill you would have mastered. However, he learned when he was buying a pair of shoes that there is a wrong way to tie your shoes and that he's been doing it the wrong way his whole life. A friend of mine sent me this link Here's how to tie your shoes. Ha, ha, ha. I thought I was going to click on it to see some, you know, it was going to be some larger. No, he just taught you how to tie your shoes. And he says that the way we typically tie our shoes is, yes, I'm illustrating it. We do this, and then we make the little rabbit ear, right? And then we go around the rabbit ear, tuck it in, and pull it tight. That's not how you tie your shoe. The right way to tie your shoe, the strong knot version of this, follow this if you can. If you want an illustration later, I'll demonstrate later up close and personal. You make the little knot, do the rabbit ear, and then you go around the other way. He says it's harder for kids to do, but it makes the knot stronger. This pair of shoes has one of those 
round shoelaces. And they're forever coming undone. So I'm walking down the street, and I like these shoes, but I'm walking down the street, and the stinking shoelaces are always coming undone. It never happens anymore. <laughs> because I'm, t- I'm serious. I'm tying my shoes the right way. And I was doing it wrong all these years. My mother taught me the wrong way to tie shoes. <laughs> Similarly, there is a right way and a wrong way to do our lives. And when our lives are lived the right way, when we make our choices the right way, our lives bear the fruit of that rightness. Some of you know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not, don't depend on, don't lean into your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him. And he'll make your path straight. There's a right way to do our lives, and when we live our lives the right way, our lives bear the fruit of that rightness. So we need to walk through the story a little bit, and then we need to look at some challenges to us living this principle. And then we're going to look at kind of what the right way is. We'll unpack that a little bit. There's a right way to make choices about our career, right way to handle conflict at home, a right way to navigate childbearing. And often we do those things based on our upbringing. Early in our marriage, for example, when Diane and I got into an argument, I thought, of course, the way to handle the argument, the way to handle the conflict was to talk louder and faster because the point of the conflict was to win. Why else are you in an argument if you don't want to win? And in my home, the way you won an argument, and you always tried to win, the way you win an argument is talk loud and fast. And I realized that even when I won, I lost. I was making choices based on my upbringing, and they ended me in a bad place. Often we base our choices on cultural influences. We get our kids involved in as much as we can. Of course we do, because that's what you do when you're an upper-middle-income suburban American. Sometimes we're tying our shoes the wrong way and we don't even know it. The life of David is a clear illustration of this principle. There was a right way and a wrong way for David to approach conflict. We heard that from Dean. There's a right way and a wrong way for David to lead. We heard that from John and from Bill and from Alex. There's a right way and a wrong way for David to deal with his enemies. There's a right way and a wrong way to become king in Israel. And for the most part, David followed the right way, and God honored that direction. All right, so I need to read 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is not an epic passage of Scripture. You know, this is the beginning of season 3 of the HBO miniseries, and finally we get some relief. So 2 Samuel chapter 5, and I'm going to be reading the first five verses. So if you've got a Bible or your Bible app, I'd love for you to look along with me, and let's just make ourselves more hot and stand out of reverence for God's Word. So 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and I want you to hear finally some relief. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. So David, you're one of us. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. We get it. And we get what God has done through you and who you've been. 
And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. We see that God has placed his hand on you. And when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact or a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed King David king over Israel. And we're going to have to hear a little bit about how this happened. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. You may be seated. All right, so last week, if you were here, you'll remember that Bill Russell covered the end of 1 Samuel for us, and we learned that King Saul is killed in battle. Several of his sons are also killed, including David's dear friend, Jonathan. Then 2 Samuel begins with an account of an Amalekite soldier who found his way into David's camp and reported to David that King Saul and his son, Prince Jonathan, were dead. We don't know who the soldier was because he was an Amalekite, and the Amalekites were enemies of Israel, but evidently he wanted to ingratiate himself to David. So David asked this soldier how he knew this to be true. How do you know that the king and the prince are dead? And the Amalekite reported that Saul had been mortally wounded, and and basically Saul had asked this soldier to kill him and put him out of his misery. And the Amalekite obliged and killed him. Then he took the crown from Saul's head and the band from his arm, and he was presenting them to David. So here they are, David, the accoutrements of power. Your enemy has been killed at my hand, may I add. No applause necessary, just a cushy job, and your cabinet will do. The Amalekite is thinking like a typical ancient Near Eastern soldier. I have killed your enemy. Now where is my reward? But David has a different thinking process because there's a right way to become king in Israel. He has the Amalekite killed for daring to lay his hands on God's anointed. And then he sings a lament for Saul and Jonathan. King Saul, who's been chasing him for more than a decade, trying to kill him. David sings a lament for him. In fact, David taught the song to his entire camp, and they all lamented for the king and the prince. There's a right way to become king in Israel, and it's different from the typical pattern. In chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, David is anointed king over the southern tribe of Judah. Finally. Judah was, at the time, perhaps the largest and most influential of the Israelite tribes. So if you're keeping score, you must be thinking, finally, David's kingship is recognized. Finally, David's troubles are over. Finally, things are going to work out. He's been hunted and stalked by King Saul and his army for more than a decade. He's lived among the enemy. He's hidden in caves. He's been afraid for his life. Finally, it's over, right? But not so fast. Almost immediately, Abner rushes to crown Ishbosheth as king over many and maybe all of the northern tribes. So let's do an overview of these characters. Abner is the general of King Saul's army. He was the the all-around strong man behind the throne, and he was King Saul's cousin. And that would figure prominently in the ancient world. It was a family thing after all. Ishbosheth is the son of Saul. So he's the next in the dynastic line in Saul's house. And he's probably the only son who is still alive after the recent war. So parentheses, a little overview. To fully appreciate what's going on here, we've got to remember that at this point in human history, there were no liberal democracies. 
There weren't even any oligarchies or aristocracies. And an oligarchy is when a small group of people rule over everybody else. And aristocracy is when an elite class rules over everyone else. No such thing. In the ancient world, there were only dynasties, which is a rule by a dictator followed by his male offspring. In other words, there were two ways to become king in the ancient world. One, to be born the oldest son of the king, or two, to kill the king in battle and to subsequently kill the king's family and all his senior commanders. But this was not David's way because there's a right way to live our lives and it isn't based on cultural currents. Okay, so predictably, hostilities break out between the house of David and the house of Saul, Second Samuel gives us this kind of bizarre, detailed account of one important incident in which the two armies met at a place called Gibeon. Listen to this. It, and it's striking, by the way, David isn't even mentioned in that section. The whole affair may have been happening without David's full approval. But each of the armies meet at this place, and, and they appoint champions who will meet in a sort of hand-to-hand tournament, kind of combat representing the armies. This is somewhat similar to what Goliath was challenging the Israelites to do earlier in the story. Of course, the tournament happens and there's bloodshed, but it doesn't stop with the tournament. And an all-out skirmish ensues between the armies of David and the house of Saul, and David's men just obliterate Abner and the army of Ishbosheth. Abner escapes, and at the end of the skirmish, three of David's nephews, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, they're at the head of David's army, And they were evidently leading this whole affair. And and they will not let matters rest. So they decide to chase Abner and try to kill him. But Abner ends up, he's a fierce warrior. And Abner ends up killing one of them instead and escaping. So I want to read real quickly the beginning of chapter 3, just one verse, because it kind of gives us a summary of this whole period and what's happening during this civil war, which lasted for years. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. He pauses for dramatic effect. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Okay, awesome that David grew stronger and stronger, but honestly, when I read that, if you've been reading this whole section, especially if you're not doing it like read a chapter and then go do your day and the next day read seven verses and go do... If you read this in one setting, by the time you get to this point, you seriously are thinking really Can't this guy ever catch a break? Can't things ever just rest and be resolved and, yay, I'm king? Well, after this, once again, something very predictable happens. Tensions mount between Ishbosheth and Abner. Remember the strong man who is his older cousin, cousin of his father. And as sometimes happens with men, the tension involved a woman. So anyway, Abner gets fed up with Ishbosheth. This is not good news for Ishbosheth. And when Abner leaves, all of the real power of the kingdom leaves with him. Abner ultimately decides to defect to David. Without a strong man to prop him up, Ishbosheth is no match for circumstances, and he's soon killed by two of his own special forces officers. And these guys are not the delicate type. They sneak into Ishbosheth's bedroom and they kill him, and then they cut his head off for good measure. And they bring it to David as a tribute. Once again, 
This was the way of things in the ancient Near East. There's no other way culturally for this to end. All of your neighbors are doing it like this, David. It shows how invincible you are, and it's a warning to all of your enemies. But this is not the way of God. There's a right way to become king in Israel, and this is not it. So David has the two soldiers killed. Bill Arnold is an Old Testament scholar who wrote an analysis of First and Second Samuel. And I really, I love his sort of high-level summary. I want to read you where he's commenting on the specific passage back a couple of chapters when Ishbosheth is first anointed king over the northern tribes. And, and David has already just been anointed king over Judah. Hear what he says. The specific phraseology used in this paragraph, seems, you have to be a scholar to use words like phraseology, used in this paragraph seems intentional in order to underscore the contrast between David and Ishbosheth. Unlike David's rise to power, for Ishbosheth, there is no mention here of divine direction or of seeking divine approval nor is there mention of public anointing or popular support. Ishbosheth is part of a political power move planned and executed by a military strongman. He's a puppet in Abner's hands. By contrast, David rises to power through sensitivity to Yahweh's guidance and timing. He seeks direction from no human but from God alone. Once he has Yahweh's message in hand, he moves forward with no hesitation or timidity. David's is no power play. His is a faith play. He goes on. Thus we can expect the contrast between Saul and David to continue, even now that Saul is dead. Ishbosheth, the hapless son of Israel's first king, simply takes his father's place as the antithesis of David. Authority and power in the northern kingdom are really located in Abner and in his ability to thwart David's enemies. By contrast, authority and power in the southern kingdom are located solely in God and in David's faithfulness to God's commands. In some, Ishbosheth is not a suitable king any more than his father was suitable to reign over Yahweh's people. But David continues to reveal what it means to be a man after God's own heart, a ruler of God's selection who exhibits like-mindedness with God. And then listen to this. At the outset of these two reigns, we learn that in Israel there is a right way and a wrong way to become king. Like the Amalekite of 2 Samuel 1, Abner and Ishbosheth failed to understand how the Israelite monarchy is to be unique from the other kingdoms. The Amalekite who brought the news of Saul's death to David at Ziklag assumed that by bearing the news, he could enter into the power-sharing structure of the new kingdom. If he could be quick enough and smart enough to beat others to the draw, perhaps he could position himself to benefit from the distribution of power in David's new kingdom, but he failed to grasp the uniqueness of the Israelite monarchy, and he paid with his life. Because there's a right way and a wrong way to do things when we follow God. There's a right way to live our lives. There's a right way to do our lives. And when we live our lives the right way, when we make choices the right way, our lives bear the fruit of that rightness. Even when circumstances conspired against David, it was a certainty that he would become king as long as he continued to remain faithful to God and to doing his life the right way. Listen to this. David wrote this psalm, Psalm 25, verses 4 through 10. It's not on the screen. Just listen. You have a way, O Lord. Show it to me. Teach me. Guide me in your path. Don't remember my sin, but forgive me. You're good, and I know that you instruct and teach the humble. You're loving 
toward those who live the right way. There is a right way to live our lives, but we need to also be honest and admit to ourselves that this principle is challenged in our thinking. Because we're here on Sunday morning, so you know, most of you to check, yeah, oh, I agree, but we, we need to acknowledge the challenges. I can think of three serious challenges. You might think of others, but let's just do three. And in the middle of this, we're going to talk about what the right way actually looks like. So challenge number one, believing it. The first challenge to this principle and us applying it to our lives is believing that there is a right way. I don't have time to fully talk about this. Let's acknowledge this is a particularly modern challenge. This would not have been a challenge for someone living in the ancient Near East. They might have disagreed about what constituted the right way, but no one in the ancient world would have argued that there was a right way to live. The notion that there is no right way, that all ways of living are essentially legitimate and valued, that has insinuated itself into our culture to such a degree that it now takes central place. And it assaults us almost every day. Here's the sum of it. In the name of tolerance, we've banished the notion that there is a right way to live at all. Again, I don't have time to deal with this fully. We've we've done so at other times, and we will again. But let me say that we should be aware of this tendency in our culture and of its effect on us. Before we drop that, let me get a little more specific. Can I say something to those of us who lean to the right socially and politically? Some of you are all ticked off and animated about this. It makes your blood boil. It makes you hate our culture. You think about tolerance and political correctness as if they are foul spirits from the pit of hell. You're in danger of losing the ability to love those around you, and you're in danger of losing the ability to offer help in living the right way because you are so intent on imposing the right way. Let me remind you, tolerance is a Jesus value. Judge not, or you'll be judged, Jesus said. We have tolerance as a part of the matrix of our cultural current because of the influence of Christian thinking on our culture. There is no tolerance in Saudi Arabia. So tolerance is no more the enemy than your pontificating judgments. Can I say a little word to those of us who lean to the left? Some of you accept the cultural current virtually without question. I mean, Ed, why should we bother with what other people want to do with their lives? Teach his own. Who am I to judge? You said it yourself. But you need to be reminded that the problem is not with tolerance. The problem is with the place our culture has given to tolerance. Tolerance is not the supreme virtue. Love is. And sometimes love and the service of truth will speak in ways that don't seem to be accepting. If I have a blind friend who comes to me this morning and says, Ed, I feel like I need to walk in this direction. That's who I am and that's what I feel and it's what I want to do. Then in the name of tolerance, I would let him walk off a cliff. It would be better if I were to say, wait, 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 I know that's what you feel like. But that's not a good way to go. A hundred feet ahead of you, there's a cliff. And your life will come to a short and quick end. The first challenge to embracing the principle that there is a right way to live is just believing it. There's a second challenge. Second challenge that I thought of is losing the trees for the forest. 
No, I didn't say that wrong. Losing the trees for the forest. Stay with me. In the living of our lives, we want access to the big ticket items, don't we? When am I going to meet my spouse? Is this the one? Well, what am I going to do when I grow up? Should I accept this job? Should I buy this house? We want answers to the big ticket items. And if we think of living the right way at all, we tend to think of it as getting the right answer to the big ticket questions. Should I take this job? Should we move to Ohio? But this is not, stay with me, this is not how God thinks about it. I don't believe that he's very concerned that we concern ourselves with those big ticket items. I'm going to say that again. I don't believe he's very concerned that we concern ourselves with those big ticket items. Let me read you another one of David's songs. It's beautiful. It's a song that I think perhaps Northern Virginians should read every day. It's Psalm 131. If you're in your Bible app, it's quick for you. I'd encourage you to go there, even though this is quick. Listen to this. This is David. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. God has, in fact, given us much instruction about how to handle ourselves, how to approach decisions, how to seek him. This is what he longs for. This is what he longs for us to concern ourselves with. The big ticket items will take care of themselves if we live our lives the right way. We aren't people who should be worried about the forest. We don't have the capacity. We should focus on the trees. Okay. What does it look like? if we focus on the trees? What does it look like to live the right way? What are we talking about specifically? Again, I'm going to paint with a broad brush, but these things are important. This is big. So if you've been here, you have all summer long followed the arc of David's life, and you've recognized that throughout his life, he's been teaching us these lessons. This is an exhaustive list, but I'm going to give you a list. If it doesn't mean figuring out what I'm going to do with my life, if it's not the big ticket items, then what does it mean to live the right way? And I'm just going to give you four things this morning. Again, not meant to be an exhaustive list. Number one, living the right way is about dependence on God. Remember all the times that David inquired of the Lord and remember all summer long we pointed that out and remember the times that he didn't inquire of the Lord and what happened subsequently, the messes he got into. Living the right way is about dependence on God. Remember what happened when David blew it? He was soft-hearted toward correction. He was teachable. He was willing to repent because living the right way is about depending on God. Someone today is praying, God, give me back that relationship, or God, change our finances, or God, should I move to Ohio? And other than, than the Ohio part, I've had these conversations in the last two weeks with some of us. And it may be that we should be praying, God, I'm yours. Even in this circumstance, I'm yours. My life is in you. Use me today, because today is all I can handle. 
First cousin to this. Second thing I would say, living the right way is about waiting on God. We are professional non-waiters. Remember what David did when he had the chance to kill Saul? And in this drama, seemingly, he didn't. David consistently refused to follow the typical ancient Near Eastern pattern of seizing the crown in favor of waiting on God. Someone today is furiously hatching a plan for how to get out of some situation that you're in or another. You're not thinking of doing anything immoral. You're just trying to make something happen. And that's your way of living right, right? You're not going to do anything immoral. And maybe this is the time for you to be still and to wait. Maybe the circumstance you're in has been specifically designed by God to force you to be still and to wait. And if that's true, then all of your efforts to make something happen are really efforts against the stream of God's will. Living the right way is about waiting on God. Thirdly, living the right way is about connecting in community. Remember all the times this summer that we pointed out how David heard these words from people? John Malella even said to us that we needed to be more like Jonathan, which Jonathan was very happy about. And frankly, for those of us who know Jonathan, it was confusing. But <laughs> David had a great friend, Jonathan, who Prince, who was giving him advice, speaking words of life into him. Remember the sermon about Abigail? And remember the wisdom that Abigail spoke into David's life and what it saved him from. Remember David when he's on the run the first time? Where does he go? He runs to Samuel because he needs that wisdom in his life. Living the right way is about connecting to community. Look, I know that you guys are busy. You don't have time to really build deep connections with others. And I want to suggest to you, you are too busy not to connect to community. You must make the effort. You need it. And we're going to provide you that opportunity. We're starting small groups right now. There's a big blackboard outside. You can't miss it. Sign up for small groups. See Terry Eagle, even though she doesn't like this series. Living the right way is about connecting to community. And finally, living the right way is about seeing ourselves as God sees us. Seeing ourselves as God sees us. What's our tendency, right? When are you most discouraged? It's when, depending on your wiring, but if you're one of those folks who's wired to just, you know, provide and the measuring stick for you is how nice the car is and that there are no problems in the house and everything looks great, then... You measure yourself when you drive home and the car goes in the driveway and you look two doors over and your neighbor has a new Volvo or a BMW. And you feel discouraged and you feel like, who am I? Of course, let's pause and recognize that, you know, if we're really going to measure ourselves on those standards, everybody in this room measure ourselves against the world. We're in the top, what, 90%? Some of you are in the top 98th percentile. The problem is that the, the 2% lives four doors down from you. And so this is how we're constantly measuring ourselves. We need to see ourselves as God sees us. This is the right way to live. Remember the Sunday Dean talked about how David saw himself? It was a little point. In the middle of conflict, 
David is addressing Saul. And Dean talked about how skillful he was, but how David saw himself. And David saw himself with remarkable clarity. He saw himself as the subject of God and as the servant of the king. And just that perspective got David out of trouble. This perspective kept him humble. That perspective engendered love and respect for him and his men. And it honored God. David saw himself as God saw him. Look, I know we all want answers to the big ticket items, but this is the stuff that's really what living the right way is all about. It's about learning to see ourselves as God sees us. And don't miss this. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in his epic sermon recorded in Matthew. Jesus said, listen, don't miss this. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, which is a synonym almost for God's control over our lives in all things. It's a synonym almost for my dependence on him. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is a synonym almost for living life the right way. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. I'll take care of all the big ticket items if you'll live the right way. One more challenge before we end and then we'll quit. The final challenge, I think, is our tendency to look for guarantees. We want the spiritual life to be like math. I do things right, and I went to church three weeks in a row, and I was super nice to that obnoxious neighbor, and I did not yell or curse at my manager at work once. Therefore, I'm expecting an awesome week. We think that doing it right ensures that things will go well and easy. So God has promised us, if we don't lean on our own understanding, if we acknowledge him in all our ways, if we do it the right way, he will make our path straight, but he does not promise that that path will not be hilly. He does not promise that there will not be rocks in it. We will have financial difficulty. We will have physical difficulty, we will have emotional difficulty, people will die. Look at David's history. Let's be reminded. If you're looking for guarantees, let's be reminded of David's history. David is a young shepherd boy minding his own business. And the prophet Samuel, perhaps the most influential guy in history, you know, this is Billy Graham, shows up on his farm, calls him out, Yes, that's the boy. He smells like sheep poop, but he's the one. Bring him forward. We're going to pour oil on him and anoint him as king. At this point, David might be 14 and clueless. (laughs) And he gets anointed king over Israel. And there's a little bit of pomp and circumstance just because Samuel's there. David is on his knees. The oil is pouring over him. Oh, wow. King. He doesn't even really know what that means, but king. Are you kidding me? He looks at his older brothers. King. (laughs) And then he stands up, and Samuel gives him a hug. And his father is like, wow, my son. And his brothers are like, eh. Right? And the sheep, they don't care. And Samuel leaves, right? 
They're all waving goodbye to him. He takes his oil with him. There was some procession. There were other people with him. They leave, and, and David is like, and what does his dad say? Go back to the sheep. Go back and take care of the sheep. Three of them have gotten away. I thought I was king. <laughs> and he goes back and he takes care of sheep at a certain point. Somebody comes from the court, from the capital. They've heard a rumor that there is this young shepherd boy who has a beautiful voice. And he writes songs and he plays the harp and it just calms people's spirits. And Saul is deeply troubled. So Saul invites him to the court. And now David and the whole family have got to be thinking, are you kidding me? And their language might have been more colorful. Are you kidding me? Is this really happening? Our brother going to the court? And he's on his way to the court. And if it were me, I don't know if, it was, if it's true with David. But I'll guarantee you that David has got to be thinking, holy smokes, it's happening. I'm going to be made king. And he goes into the court and he plays the heart for Saul. And Saul comes down and Saul says, you're awesome. You're the man. And then they have the you know, little battles. And David proves that he's not only a great singer, but he's also a fierce and awesome warrior and a great leader. What is 16? Maybe he's 18. And men follow him because he's fierce and he's honorable. And Saul has heard rumor of what Samuel did. He sees how popular David is, and he tries to kill him. And this is the next decade of his life. Saul is constantly chasing him, trying to kill him. People begin to collect around him, but even the ones that collect around him, they're, they're sleeping in caves and out in the open country, running. Every time they hear Saul coming, they have to run. They've got a handful of men. Saul's got an army. What happened to the kingship? For over a decade, David is running for his life. And we want guarantees. We want guarantees that things are going to be okay and easy. We don't get that guarantee. But we get the guarantee that if we do it the right way, because there's a right way to be king in Israel, if we do it the right way, then God's purposes will be served. And our lives will bear the fruit of that. So I don't know where you are this morning, but I know where I am. You're thinking I'm sitting in a super hot auditorium. But other than that, things may be going really well for you today. You may be in the court playing the harp. This is really good. This is, by the way, God, this is exactly what I signed up for. And then the wrath of the king comes. And you may be experiencing it, and you're thinking, what? I signed up to be a harp player, and then I'm going to be anointed king. Some of you are well past that. Some of you know that the king wants your life. Some of you are past that. Some of you are hiding in a cave, and you're dirty and hungry. And you're thinking, what happened? And what good was all of that religious stuff? But ultimately... David will become king, and God's purposes will be served. One more footnote. After David becomes king, there's a whole other book. <laughs> he doesn't always get it right, even after he becomes king. 
And by the way, it doesn't all become easy and comfortable. And some of you are in that place today, aren't you? Some of you are in the place today of God has done good stuff in your life and he's blessed you and you have fruit in your life and it's still not stinking comfortable and easy. And I thought at some point it would get to the point where I could just say, awesome. Now I'm going to go get a suntan. We don't get that guarantee, but we do get a straight path that honors him and produces fruit in our lives for his kingdom. If we live our lives the right way, our lives will bear fruit. The fruit of rightness, even in difficulty and in good times. And all God's people said, really? Okay, so all God's people said, Yes, they meant it the second time because they were embarrassed by that first amen. <laughs> All right, let's pray, and then we're going to seal this final thing with a song. We're going to, before we go home today, we're going to make sure that we get this. We're in this. We're up for living the right way, and this morning we're going to say, regardless of the circumstances, I'm in. Because I believe that he'll make my path straight, so I'm in. And things right now are tough, but I'm in. Or I'm in, and I'm playing my heart, and I'm thinking how awesome this is, but I know I'm not always going to be just sitting here chilling, playing my heart. And so I'm in no matter what comes. Let's stand and pray. So, uh, Lord, I pray this morning that you would forgive us for our whining. Forgive us for wanting the guarantee that it would always be easy and comfortable. It's doggone it. It's easy and comfortable when it's easy and comfortable, and that's the way we like it. You know, Lord, we don't really confess that we want it to be easy and comfortable, because we do, but we confess that we want it so badly that we'll sometimes abort doing it the right way, or we'll sometimes abort depending on you when it's not easy and comfortable. So today, hear us. We're saying we're all in. We are all in. Regardless, we are all in. And at some future date, when we start to whine, we give you permission to remind us that this morning we said we're all in. Make us people after your heart. Make us people who will bless you no matter the circumstance. Blessed be your name, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Blessed be your name When the sun's shining down on me When the world's all as it should be Blessed be your name Blessed be your name On the road marked with suffering Though there's pain in the offering Blessed be your name Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to breathe. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name, oh Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glory. 
Bless me.